0: are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit HarvestBrampton.ca. So Father, we sing your praises. We sing that all the glory, Lord, is due to you and you alone, not to us. Lord, because we know how good and gracious You are. And so we sing your praises, Lord, because we have experienced your goodness. God, thank you for the love that you have for us. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave all for us. And so, God, we sing your praises. We say all the glory is due to you because we know, Lord, and have experienced your goodness. I pray we would experience your goodness even now, sitting under the teaching and preaching of your word. Lord, help me to be an encouragement, Lord, to everyone who is here now. I pray they would hear you speaking through me. And God, that they would be edified and built up in what they hear in their faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Happy New Year. Go ahead and take a seat. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, if you put your hand up our ushers would give, will give a Bible to you, so just put your hand up. If you don't own a Bible, then you can keep that Bible. That's, that's yours. Um, has, have you ever had your plan get completely messed up? You plan something, and you think, I'm going to execute that plan, and then it, get, it just gets completely blown up by someone else. You plan to run into the grocery store very quickly and run back out. But you get into the grocery store and everyone in your line decides today they're going to price match. And so you think, I'm going to leave this line and I'm going to go to another line. But the line you go into, everybody in that line has chosen all the exotic fruit in the grocery store and the cashier can't find the price. And you're thinking, this is not going to be quick. Or you think, tonight is the night I'm going I'm to sleep through the entire night. But your new neighbors moved in. And they decided that this is the weekend. They're going to party well into the morning. And our plans are messed up. See, our plans get messed up. But the plan of God never gets messed up. God's plan is active and going right now on schedule, on time. And nothing can mess that plan up. And in our passage today, we are going to see that Saul... Realizes his plan and God's plan are completely different. And Saul tries to stop God's plan. Saul's plan is different than God's plan, which means his plan is a bad plan. Anytime your plan is different than God's plan, it's a bad plan. And we are going to see this bad plan carry out, and it's going to go very bad for Saul. He committed to try to stop the plan of God. And in his attempt to stop God's plan, it goes bad for him. But in this story, we see three things. We learn three things that God gives us, gives his people, in order to accomplish his plan in in our lives. Here's the first one, point number one. God gives his people his presence, his presence. Verse 1 of chapter 18. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servant. So David is back now from the the victory over Goliath, and he, he explains who he is to Saul. And as he's doing that, it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan's heart was knit to David because David embodied the things that were most precious to Jonathan love for God, a commitment to the plan of God, delight in God. Jonathan also knows that that God is with David. And so he commits himself to him. It says that he made a covenant with David. This tells us here that the relationship is not temporary. That this is going to be an ongoing relationship and later in our message we're going to see just how important it is that they make this covenant. Jonathan's response to David uh, is surprising. It actually tells us a lot about Jonathan. See, Jonathan could have been jealous of David. uh, Jonathan uh, is older than David. David is younger than him. David has had a great victory in chapter 17. We saw that. But Jonathan also had a great victory in chapter 14. So it's easy. He could have been filled with resentment as he sees David getting praise and getting love from the people. But there's no resentment at all. There's no envy. There's no jealousy. It says that he loved him as his own soul. See, Jonathan is teaching us here how to be a true friend. One of the ways you can know if you really are for someone, if you really are a true friend to someone, is when you can celebrate their success, even when their success puts them ahead of you or above you. Jonathan loved David because he believed in God's plan for him. And that's why in verse 4, he gives him his royal clothing and his weapons. This is the... First sign here that Jonathan is deferring to David as God's true king. A truth that we'll see him embrace in chapter 23. Jonathan here models for us what we see in Barnabas. What we see later in the New Testament in Barnabas. Who willingly got out of the way so that Paul could be greatly used by God. He models what we see with John the Baptist. Who got out of the way for Jesus In John 3, verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. See, it takes faith to be willing to be less. To humble ourselves to God's plan, even when that plan is not what we are expecting. God's plan is always better than my plan. See, we can follow Jonathan's example, decreasing. So that the name of Jesus Christ would increase around the world. The power to do that, the power to decrease so that the name of Jesus would increase, is by comes when we remember the gospel. When we remember the willingness of Jesus Christ to give up his kingdom so that you and I could have an opportunity to be saved and be a part of that kingdom. When we remember the gospel. We stop making our life about building our own little kingdoms that will not last. And we make our life about building the kingdom of Jesus Christ that will last. And when we remember the gospel, when we are, when we are committed to God's kingdom, we will not be envious. We will not be jealous if God chooses to use somebody else more than us to build that kingdom. That's what's going on with Jonathan, He's interested in building God's kingdom, not his own. Six times in chapter 18, we're told that someone loves David. But not everybody in the chapter loves David. Jonathan loves David, but that's not the case for his father. And for the rest of the story, we'll see a major contrast between Jonathan and his father. Father, In the case of Jonathan and Saul, the apple fell very far from the tree. As David comes back from his victories in verses 6 to 7, the women welcome him by singing his praises. And what they say exposes the jealousy that is in Saul's heart. See, they're still singing Saul's praises, but they're singing David's just a little bit more. And look at what he says. Look at verse 8 then Saul was very angry and this thing displeased him he said they have ascribed to david 10000 and to me they have ascribed thousands and what more can he have but the kingdom and Saul eyed david from that day on david draws such diverse reactions from his friend Jonathan, he draws faithful love. From the, from the women, he draws praise. And from Saul, he draws envy and murderous hatred. Many years later, Jesus Christ would come, and he would draw such diverse reactions. Loving commitment from the disciples, a commitment and a love for Jesus, a worship of Jesus. But then there was others who hated Jesus, who wanted him gone and that's the same today. There, he still draws a very diverse reaction from people, different ways that they respond to him. The question that we have to answer is, how am I responding to Jesus? How do I react to Jesus? Do I react with indifference? Do I react with anger? Am I mocking Jesus? Or am I delighting in Jesus? Am I committing myself to Jesus. How we respond to Jesus, here's why this is important. How you respond to Jesus tells you if you're about building his kingdom or if you're still trying to build your own. So our response matters very much. Saul wants David gone, it says that he eyed him from that day on. What's this mean here is that that Saul here is wearing a very specific lens. He saw David through an evil lens. His glasses are very bad. And that means no matter what David did, he viewed it as evil. Everything David did, Saul thought, David is trying to get rid of me. And so he watched him daily for a chance to do evil to him. And that's what goes on in the rest of the story. In verse 11, in a rage, he throws a spear at him. In verse 17, he sends David out to fight the Philistines, hoping he'll die. In verse 20, he gives David his daughter, Michael, hoping that she will be a snare to him. By snare, he was hoping that as David went out to try to get the bride price, that the Philistines would kill him. If he didn't die that way, then he hoped that that Michael would draw David away from a commitment to God to serve idols. Saul's desire to kill David is driven by his fear of David. Look at verse 12. It says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. God has left Saul and he is with David Now, look at verse 15. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. He is filled with fear. See, jealousy, jealousy is just kind of what you see at the top. But what's going on under the bottom is that there's a a fear running through Saul's life. Saul is fearful because he is losing popularity. Popularity has become what brings him worth and significance. Being popular is his identity. That's why he's desperate for people to approve of him. And he knows that Samuel has rejected him, which means God has rejected him. And now he thinks, well, if the people love David and are singing his praises, they must be rejecting me too. He's panicking. But notice that it never says that people don't love and respect Saul. It never says that. See, Saul here is not thinking clearly. This is what fear does. It stops us from thinking in the right ways. See, whenever our lives become about pleasing people, Saul is a people pleaser. Whenever our lives become about pleasing people and making sure that they approve of us, we start to live in fear. And the reason why we live in fear is because we're never sure if people are pleased with us. We're never sure if everyone's always pleased. And because we're never sure, we can never rest. We can't stop. We're always wondering, are people people good with me? Is everything okay? And it goes on and on and on and on, and we cannot rest. We are filled with fear. But our identity shouldn't come from what people think about us. Our identity should come from what God has said about us, about how God feels about us, that we are made in his image, that we are saved by his grace, that we are loved by him and adopted into his family. Our identity should come from that reality, that we are loved by God, not trying to make sure people are pleased with us. No matter what Saul tried to do to David, he has more and more success. Verse 5, verse 14, verse 15, and verse 30 all tell us that David had success, that he was successful. See, Saul's plan is backfiring on him. He's trying to get rid of David, but he's only making him more popular. His plan is backfiring. Because it's running up against God's plan. Look at verse 30. It says, then the commander of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. So that his name was highly esteemed. David had more and more success, and his name is highly esteemed. He's getting the respect and the love of the people. And you might be tempted to think that it's because of David, but it's not. David has more and more and more success, but it's not because of David. It's because of who is with David. It says the Lord is with him, verse 12, verse 14, verse 28. All tell us that the Lord was with David David is in God's presence. God was with David. That's what brought him success. And just like God is with David or was with David, he is with us also. See, you and I live our lives in the presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have success because of him. We have success in our lives because of the grace that is being given to us. Now, here's the thing. Success does not always mean health, wealth, and happiness. Success means peace, joy, and love for God, no matter what comes to us as he is working out his plan in our lives. And when we experience that success, it's, there's nothing wrong with enjoying it. But we give God all the praise because we know it's because he is with us. Because he is working his good plan in our lives. God was with David, but Saul is still after David. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. When you read chapter 18 in full detail, you'll realize that Saul was much more subtle about trying to get rid of David. But now, he's not subtle. He's open. He is wide open about what he's trying to do. And he's so open, he's asking people. He's saying, help me kill David. He's actively trying to stop God's plan, but God protected David, which is our second point. Point number two is this. God gives his people his protection. God protected David by using Saul's family. Saul probably thought that Jonathan and Michael was going to stand with him in his madness, but they actually side with David. And in verses 2 to 3, Jonathan Warns David and promises that he would speak to his father for him. Look at verse 4. It says, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. God protected David by providing him with a friend. Jonathan here is an advocate for David. He was provisioned from God. He reminds Saul of David's victory. He says he won a great victory. And then he says, and we all benefited from that. You benefited from that victory. And then he reminds him of David's Innocence. He says, why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? He says, he's innocent. Why do you want to do this? This should remind us of Jesus. This should remind us of Jesus, the true innocent one who was actually put to death without cause. In Mark 15, when they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? He says, why? Jesus had no advocate. Jesus did no evil. But he gave himself on the cross so that those who have done evil could have an advocate. So that you and I could be forgiven. So that we could be saved. So that we could have Jesus as A friend. Earlier I mentioned that Jonathan was a true friend to David. And here again we see why. This is the kind of friend you want in your life. Someone who's willing to advocate for you. Whether that's through prayer. Going to God on your behalf. Joining you in prayer when you are struggling and confused. Confused. Or helping you work out a broken relationship in your life. This is the kind of friend you want in your life. And because the Spirit is in us, this is the kind of friend that we can be as well. Jonathan talks to his dad and things go back to normal, but not for long. Eventually there's more war and David has more success. And then there's more madness from Saul. And that's because he's under God's Judgment, And so a harmful spirit comes back on him. In verse 19 to 17, Saul throws a spear again at David, trying to kill him. David flees this time to his house. And as he flees to his home, then Saul sets an ambush. They're hoping to kill him in the morning. But then his wife lowers him out of a window and he escapes. And from that escape, he runs straight to Samuel. Look at verse 18. Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Rama and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoeth. So David goes and he bears his soul to Samuel. He says, He tells him all that he has been going through. This guy's throwing spears at me. I don't even know why. And then they go and they live together. This is the start of a long, long trial in David's life. Suffering is only going to intensify. From here on. And in 19 to 24, we're told a little bit of a strange story. David is living with Samuel, and Saul is determined to get him. And so Saul finds out that he's there, and so he sends messengers to go and capture David. And the messengers go, and then they're overcome by the Spirit of God. Saul sends three, he, three times he sends people, and they're overcome, and then finally he just goes himself. You know, you could kind of see him on the way there, like, if you want something right, done right, you got to do it yourself, as he's stomping out. But as he's going on his way, look at what happens to him. Verse 23, and he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, just like the... Other three who came, the Spirit comes on him too. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. The Spirit completely overwhelms Saul. He is humbled here. We're told this part of the story because the writer wants us to see that God is humbling Saul. It says that he lay naked that day and all that night. See, if Saul won't surrender the kingdom, if he won't surrender the crown, if he won't get on God's plan, then God humbles him. God crushes him and strips the kingdom from him literally. See, God always gets his way. You gotta ha- we've got to have that in our minds. God always gets his way. And so Saul here is completely crushed. And in his crushing, he actually prophesies in agreement with God. God makes his enemies submit to him and declare his goodness and the goodness of his plan. Saul has become the seed of Of the serpent. He is trying to destroy God's anointed. But no matter what he tried, no matter what he did, God was defeating his plan. Every attempt he made, God frustrated his plan. Psalm 34 Psalm 34 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Our life can be difficult. The Bible makes that clear. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But what? But the Lord delivers them, delivers him out of them all. David's afflictions are many. We are going to see. But God delivers him out of them all. God protects David. And just like God protected David, he protects us. And he does it because he's got a plan. God has a plan. And I know that has become a cliche in our life and in our world. God has a plan. But even though it's become a cliche, and even though people say it to us sometimes because they don't know what to say when they see us in the middle of our struggle, just because people make that a cliche doesn't mean that it's not true. That God has a plan for your life, for my life, and that plan is going to be accomplished. Nothing can stop the plan of God for you and for me. And that should be encouraging to us. Nothing can stop what God wants to do and is doing in us. In applying this to our lives, Dale Davis says this, my life holds a far more modest place in God's kingdom plan, and the scheme of my life is almost totally hidden from me. Nevertheless, when all qualifications are stated, it seems I can still claim Davidic protection. In principle, that is. I can be confident that God will keep me until whatever he has ordained for me to be or to do is accomplished. God is protecting his people protecting us now that does not mean things will always be easy God's protection does not mean there will not be pain it does not mean there won't be trials his protection his protection means that we will have his presence and his peace as we are on the path his presence and his peace To protect us from the sin of unbelief. See, David's life hasn't gotten any easier here. He's still running for his life and he is still confused. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and he came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life. David's confused. He's like, what have I done? Why why is this happening to me? Why is this trial? Why is this season of suffering come into my life? What did I do? See, we have God's presence. We have his protection. And in our confusion, we'll see we have, God has given his people his peace. We have his peace. David is not asking this question, these questions, because He's unconvinced that Saul is hostile towards him. He's convinced of that. He's just not sure why it's happening. And in verses 2 to 3, it seems like Jonathan is not not convinced that uh, that he is in danger. And maybe it's because things went back to normal for a little while. But David presses the point home. He says... In, chapter, in verse 3 of chapter 20. But David vowed again saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but, but a step between me and death. David presses the point home. He says, trust me, your dad is trying to kill me. He is after me. In verses 4 to 7, Jonathan agrees to help David and they propose a test situation that may reveal Saul's intentions and David hopes that this will happen by him missing the monthly meal that Saul holds. And David, he appeals to Jonathan for help and he explains he explains to him why why he has turned to him at this point. Look at verse 8. He says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. David turned to him because they made a covenant. Remember that? Chapter 18, verse 3. They made a covenant to one another. Jonathan committed himself to David. And so David turns to him for help. He says, Jonathan, he says to Jonathan, deal kindly with me. The word for kindly is hesed. It carries the idea here of love, compassion, loyalty, and faithfulness. Sometimes it's translated loyal love. David says, treat me with loyal love, Jonathan. We committed to one another. Help me. See, David sets a good example for us here. This is teaching us that in our turmoil, in our distress, in our moments of confusion, we can take ourselves to the one person who has made covenant with us. When we are confused, when we are hurting, we turn to God. That's where we run, who Exodus 34.6 tells us is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. When I'm confused, when I don't know what is going on, when that thing comes into my life that makes me wonder, what is going to come next? Because I, I don't know what's happening. We do what David did. We run to our friend. We run to God, the one who has made covenant with us, who is merciful, it says, and abundant in loyal love, who loves us and promises that he is going to help us. In 19, sorry, verse 9 to 13, Jonathan commits to warn David if he finds out that for sure that his dad wants to kill him. And then Jonathan asks David for covenant faithfulness to him. He's saying you're asking me to be loyal to you, I need you to be loyal to me. Look at verse 14 says, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan understands that God is with David, he is protecting David, and that it's just a matter of time until David is king. And so he says, show me kindness when you become king, when you are on your throne. Not if you get on your throne, but when you get on your throne. Show me kindness. And one of the reasons why he does this is because in those times... When a new dynasty came in, the universal practice was to wipe out the entire other household. You got rid of everyone from the previous household. And so Jonathan is asking David to spare his life and the life of his children. Jonathan here secures a future for himself and for his, his children. He does all of this by faith because he believed and trusted and was committed to God's plan for David's life and his life. Look at verse, sorry here, uh, in verse 17 to 29, then the plan is executed. Jonathan explains how he will alert David if he is in danger, and then he goes to the dinner without David, and the first night he is there, not David is not there, Saul is not too bothered. He figured something just might have happened to him. But then the second night, David is not there. And when he sees that David is not there on the second night, he interrogates Jonathan. And Jonathan explains to him why David isn't there. And then Saul's anger erupts like a volcano. It explodes. Look at verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Look at verse 33. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Saul here is a madman. He's so determined to hold on to his kingdom. He's so against the plan of God that he throws a spear at his own son. He's willing to kill his son. See Jonathan to him is no different than David. Both need to be wiped out he says for as long as the son of jesse lives on earth neither you nor your kingdom shall be established saul only cares about himself he only cares about how things are going to look for him saul will do anything to keep his fragile hold on the throne jonathan though gladly gives up the throne Jonathan here is entrusting himself to a better king than his father. See, Jonathan taught us to be a good friend, but Jonathan now is also teaching us what it means to be a good follower, what it means to be a good and true disciple of Jesus Christ. He made his life about following God's true king instead of trying to be king. He's like, I'm not trying to be king. I'm about following God's true king. And this is what the followers of Jesus Christ are called to. To entrust our future to God's true king and not try to be king. Because when we entrust our future to God's true king, we actually gain protection from Jesus under and in his kingdom. Mark 8. Mark 8 says in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and, and the gospels will save it. If you want your life to go well. If you want things to go well for you in the end. The wisest thing that you and I can do is to get off of our plan and get on to God's plan, following and committing ourselves to His true King. In verses 34 to 40, Jonathan grieves for David. Then Jonathan shoots the arrows that signal to David that it's time for him to flee, that he is not safe. Jonathan brings a boy with him, and the boy collects the arrows and takes it back into the city. And then David and Jonathan have a fair, well, look at verse 41. It says, as soon as the boy had gone, David arose from beside the stone heap, and he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And they, and he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. David never speaks. He just weeps. Jonathan does speak, though. And what Jonathan says is actually surprising when you consider the moment. He says, go in peace. Go in shalom. This is not what you would be expecting at this point. David is about to flee in panic. His life is only going to get harder and harder and harder from here on out. He's going to spend years as a fugitive. Jonathan even is going back into the city, not sure if he is going to be ambushed. But in saying, go in peace, Jonathan is not claiming that all is peaceful. He's not claiming that David won't suffer. Jonathan is saying, David can go in peace because there's peace between them. Because they have made a covenant together. There's peace between us. And their experience is our experience. When we committed ourselves to Jesus Christ, when we we turned to him for our salvation, peace came into our life. Peace between us and God. Romans 5 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith in this grace in which we stand. The Christian is standing in grace. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Notice in this passage that there's peace with God and suffering. In the same passage, we have peace with God. And suffering. That's biblical peace. That is biblical peace. Biblical peace does not mean we will not suffer. This is a lie that prosperity preachers try to tell people. And it's wicked and wrong that they do it. Biblical peace does not mean we will not suffer. We live in a broken world waiting to be redeemed. So you and I should expect trials. It was part of God's plan for David, and it's part of God's plan for you and for me. But even though trials are part of the plan, even though trials and suffering and difficulty, even though those things come, we never experience them without God. We never go through them without his help and his peace. Dale Davis says the Christian does not have peace because things are always peaceful. He has peace because a greater Jonathan has pledged his friendship to him. And that greater Jonathan is Jesus Christ who said this in John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. In our difficulty, in the confusing times, Jesus says we don't have to be afraid. Our hearts don't have to be troubled. That's because we have his friendship and his support. Jesus has committed himself to us and will help us in the difficulty. He gives us his peace. We have his peace because we have his protection and his presence. All of these things are in our lives so that God will accomplish his purposes for us. God's plan cannot be stopped. We have his peace. And one of the best reminders of the peace between us and God is communion. In communion, we can stop and reflect of on on the peace that we have. And so we should take this time to consider how much it cost Jesus for us to have this peace. We We should consider how committed Jesus was to the plan of his father, committed to accomplish that plan, to save us and give us hope, to give us the peace that we have. We should consider all of these things. We should also consider our own lives. When we go to take communion, the Bible tells us to examine ourselves. That's to take a moment to reflect and to think, is there anything in my life that I need to confess to the Lord before taking communion? And so make sure you do that. We are also to examine ourselves to see if we have a broken relationship. If there's something between us and someone else, and if there is, we should not take communion. We should go and make things right with that person. That doesn't mean we are not saved. It's just that God is very concerned and he cares about our horizontal relationship as much as he cares about our vertical relationship with him and with others. And so we should go and make that right and then take communion the next time we do it. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you haven't committed yourself to him. Your hope isn't found in Jesus. Then we want you to know that communion is not for you. And when the trays come, we're asking that you would let it pass. We're not judging you for that. It's just communion is for believers, those who are trusting in Christ. But if you have questions, we would love to talk to you after the service. So just come and ask. Let's take some time now as the ushers put out the elements. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.